Scripture reading this evening will be from Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 28. Luke chapter 7, verse 28, be on page 864 of the Red Pew Bibles. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. For a long time, I've thought that it would be a good idea to speak about lesser known passages about baptism. There are a lot of passages that are really well known. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, for example. Or Romans 6, 3 through 6 that we talked about in our sermon this morning. Or Acts 2, 38, people know these passages. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, where we're baptized into Christ and that's how we become sons of God and children of Abraham. All those are really well-known passages about baptism. But as I'm reading my Bible, and I suspect you do the same thing, every once in a while you'll come across a passage and you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think that's talking about baptism too. This is not an exhaustive list, but I thought it would be a good list for us to stop and think about tonight together as the people of God. The scriptures have a lot to say about baptism and its place in someone who is outside of Christ coming in to a right relationship with God. Let's share together eight passages from scripture this evening. I'm just gonna put the uh, scriptures on the screen for you. Eight passages that are lesser known passages about baptism. The first tonight is Luke 7, verses 28 through 30. You can open your Bibles there if you like, but like I said, I'm just gonna put the text on the screen. And Trent just read this a moment ago. But listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, among those born of women, there's none greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And then verse 30 says, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. What does this mean? For 400 years from the close of the Old Testament until the coming of John the Baptist, there was no prophet in Israel. Nobody was receiving revelation from God. And when John appeared, everybody got excited because for the first time in four centuries, there's someone who is claiming to be a prophet, who is preaching sermons that are, that are from God. And John, the baptizer, he was telling everybody that they ought to repent and be baptized. And that's what John did. That's why we call him John the Baptist. Another thing about John the baptizer is that he never did any miracles. Uh, John chapter 10 verse 41 tells us that John did no signs, no miracles to prove that he was a prophet. You were just supposed to believe the message that he preached, believe that, that this was the forerunner of the Messiah. And if you believe those things, you'd be baptized. For our purposes, isn't it interesting the way the scriptures spell it out? The purpose of God for people's lives how did he communicate that purpose? He did it through prophets like John the baptizer or centuries earlier like Jeremiah or Isaiah or David. God spoke through those prophets and he expected people to listen to what they said. John said, be baptized. 
And when John, a legitimate prophet, said be baptized, that was God's purpose for those people's lives. Brothers and sisters and friends, when the Bible tells us to be baptized, likewise, that's God's purpose for you and for me. Don't reject his purpose for your life, not having been baptized for the reasons the New Testament, the gospel tells us to be baptized. Here's a second lesser known passage about baptism. John 4 verses 1 and 2. In the Gospel of John, in Jesus' ministry, the Scripture just makes this almost a footnote. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then in parentheses it has, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. A couple of noteworthy things. You know, sometimes people have in their minds that only John the Baptist's ministry was about baptism, but that's not true according to this passage and others. Jesus was making disciples by baptizing them as well. People would come and they would follow Jesus and they would listen to his teachings and there were always people that were curious and maybe not ready to commit to following Jesus. But I suspect that if you came up to Jesus and you said, Lord, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? It seems from this passage that one of the answers Jesus gives is you should be baptized. If you've not been baptized by John, if you've not been baptized by my apostles, you should be baptized. And there came a point in his ministry when Jesus and his apostles were baptizing even more than John was. And then look at verse 2. It tells us very wisely that Jesus, even though he could have, if he'd wanted to, baptize people, Jesus chose not to. Why do you think that is? Just imagine what it would be like if you, in the first century church, if you were able to say, I was baptized by Jesus. You you were baptized by Peter or Andrew or James or John. You might've even been baptized by Judas, but I was baptized by Jesus. And all of a sudden this rivalry becomes an issue. Jesus knew better than to be the one that was baptizing these disciples, but he allowed and commanded indeed his apostles to do so. Isn't it interesting that baptism was a part of Jesus' ministry? A third passage, lesser known passages we're studying tonight about baptism. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 17. If somebody brings this up, they're usually trying to prove to you that baptism is not necessary. Here's what the passage says. I know it's kind of tiny. You might want to turn your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, what I mean, talking about divisions in the church in Corinth, is that each one of you says, I'm following Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. And then he begins to ask some rhetorical questions in verse 13. He asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, these people had been baptized. That's important to note. I thank God, Paul goes on in verse 14, that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I don't want that. I don't want you to follow me, Paul says. I did baptize, he says, also the household of Stephanus. Verse 16, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me, verse 17, to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What does the passage mean? It means that people in the church at Corinth were dividing behind their favorite preachers, their favorite apostles, and some of them might have even just kind of looked down their nose and said, I'm of Christ. I'm I'm, I'm a, you know, party unto myself. 
And Paul says, stop it, stop the division. Were you, were you baptized in the name of Paul or baptized in the name of Peter? No, you were baptized into Christ. That's how someone is baptized. And then when he says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. Some people take that and say, well, you see there, baptism's not important because Paul said that he didn't come to baptize. He just told you in the previous verses that he'd already baptized at least three individuals and maybe some others that he couldn't remember. So when he says, I didn't come to baptize, he's not saying it's not important. What he's saying is in verse 17, it's the preaching of the cross that's important. And brothers and sisters, it's still important today. We need to lift up Jesus and the cross. We need to show people what the sacrifice of Jesus means. And when people understand that sacrifice and what it means, the implications for their lives are, you should repent and be baptized, buried with Christ to rise to walk in newness of life. That's how we appropriate, that's how we accept the gift. And that's why Paul says, it's the preaching of the cross that's important. Stop dividing about who your favorite preacher is or maybe even who baptized you. That's, that's not important. What's important is the preaching of the cross. Christ didn't send me to baptize. It's not about who I baptize and who you baptize and how many people you baptize. That's not even what's important. What's important is, are we following Jesus? Are we serving him? Lesser known passage on baptism. It's essential. These people thought it was essential. And Paul said, but the preaching of the cross, that's primary. Next, Romans 6, verse 17. You know, this morning we talked about Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. And if you weren't able to be with us this morning, I'd advise you to go back and look at at least that part of the lesson. It explains what baptism means, what it signifies. We're being buried with Christ. We're being raised to walk in newness of life when we're baptized. But Romans 6, 17 Paul writes, thanks be to God that you, Christians, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You say, well, where's baptism in that passage? It's there in the highlighted words. Maybe some of your translations say that form of teaching or that pattern of teaching. Maybe some of your translations say that. But the Greek word is tupos, T-U-P-O-S, pattern, type, And Paul is saying, you Christians, from the heart, even though you were slaves of sin, from the heart, you became obedient to a form of doctrine, a pattern of teaching, a standard. What's he talking about? He's talking about what he wrote in Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. When we are baptized, we are following, we are conforming to a pattern Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and we are following that pattern in our lives. We die to sin, we're buried with Christ in the water, we rise to walk in newness of life. You became obedient from the heart. It's not just an outward show, it's not just, you know, I'm just symbolizing what's already happened. This is the point at which somebody who's a slave of sin becomes a slave of God, a child of God. Most people, when they're talking about baptism, don't look at Romans 6, 17. But that may be one of the strongest passages anywhere in the Bible to talk about what happens when somebody's baptized. We're obedient from the heart to the pattern that God has set forth in his word. Next, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It's about marriage, but it's also about baptism. Watch this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the cross. If you don't see the cross in Ephesians 5.25, you've missed the point. Jesus died on the cross for the church. 
And then it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. That means to make her holy. Sanctify, it means to cleanse someone or something. He might sanctify the church having cleansed her. Notice the highlighted words, by the washing of water with, or some translations say by the word. So that he might present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice again, he gave himself up for the church, the cross, so that the cross happened so that he could wash the church with water by the word. What does that mean? The word is a reference to the gospel, the gospel message. When people come and preach the gospel, they use words. We talk about the message of Jesus and what he's come to do for us. The word needs to be received. And when you hear that gospel message, when you hear those words, the conclusion that people came to was, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that was always given was, be baptized. The washing of water, that's the natural conclusion. This is baptism. When I hear the gospel and I understand the gospel implications for my life, I will repent and be baptized. And notice again, very carefully notice, before we were, we we were with spot, we were, we were defiled, we were, we were vile, we were in sin. But after we were washed with water by the word or with the word, after we heard the gospel and responded to the gospel in baptism, the scripture says in verse 27, we are a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy without blemish. Husbands, love your wives that way. Jesus did everything for his bride. He made sure that he was seeking her highest good, washing of water with the word. Next, Titus 3, verses 4 through 6. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Titus 3, verse 4, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice that salvation in this passage is all God's idea. God takes the initiative. God sees that you're lost. He sees that I'm lost. And God sends a savior. He makes a plan so that there can be access to salvation. So God saves us, not because of works done by us, not because we've you know, been such good, noble, wonderful people that God looks at us and says, well, I gotta save you. No, rather, His salvation is about his mercy. He's treating us better than we deserve. There's a couple of y'all when I see you on Sunday morning, Sunday night, a couple of you, you know who you are. And I say, how are you doing brother, sister, so-and-so? And you'll say pretty characteristically, I'm better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Did you know when God saves us, he's treating us better than we ever deserved? That's what this passage is teaching us. According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's baptism, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you go down into that water, the Bible teaches that God's power is at work. When you're in that water, when you're raised up out of that water, the power of God is at work in our lives. The renewal of the Holy Spirit, something that God alone is able to do happens because of our obedient faith, our obedient response in a loving way to what God has commanded us to do. 
And in his mercy, he washes our sins away. He renews us and he pours out richly his Holy Spirit upon his people. That's what the passage tells us. The goodness and loving kindness of God appears and he treats us so much better than we ever deserved. Baptism connects to all that. Next, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. You know the Hebrews writer, we've been talking about Hebrews on Wednesday nights all summer. The Hebrews writer has a lot of Old Testament knowledge and uses a lot of illustrations from the Old Testament. And toward the end of the book in Hebrews 10, verse 22, this is right before, by the way, he says that we ought to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, Hebrews 10, 25. Hebrews 10, 22, right before this, he says, let us draw near. He's talking about drawing near to God. He's talking about coming into the presence of God. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to be frightened. You don't have to be like that Old Testament high priest who was worried that he was gonna get struck dead because he came into the presence of God. No, we can come in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the Old Testament, if you were gonna go into the tabernacle or temple, You had to do some sprinkling of blood, priests did, not just anybody could do this. You had to have blood sprinkled on certain areas and parts and things like that. And then you had to wash your body. There was washings that took place. And certainly there's a reference to that, but he's not talking about Old Testament priests here. He's talking about Christians. This is a reference to what happens to us in baptism. What happens in baptism? God washes our sins away. Yes, your body's washed with pure water, but that's not even the point. The the outward washing is not even the thing. It's about your conscience. It's about being made clean. It's about being made right in God's sight again. And because of what God has done for us when we were baptized, we can draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21. Peter uses this as an analogy. He says in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, speaking about the ark, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Verse 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does all that mean? Peter's making an analogy. He says, you got to follow his logic. You just can't make up your own. You can't press this and say, well, I think this means this. And just listen to what he says. He says, in the ancient world, there were all these wicked people and Noah built an ark And the people that wanted to be saved got into the ark, which just included eight individuals, just Noah and his family. They all got into the ark. God shut the door. God caused it to rain. He caused the fountains of the deep to to open up. And Peter says they were saved by water. That's what it says. They were saved by water. The water lifted that ark up and it carried that ark along for 40 days and 40 nights plus some time. And then that ark settled on Mount Ararat. And those people were delivered by water out of a sinful, wicked world into a new world where just those eight individuals and those animals that were on the ark began to repopulate the earth. They were delivered by water into a new world. Baptism corresponds to this, he says. And he says, it's not about the removal of dirt from the body. I hope you take showers. I hope you take baths. 
That's a good thing to do. It's good to be hygienic. But Peter says that's not what baptism's all about. It's not about being hygienic. It's not about taking a bath. Baptism rather is an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does he mean by that? God, I know that I am guilty of sin. I know that I have wronged you. I know that I've violated your will. And I know that there's nothing I can do to get rid of that. There's nothing I could ever do to commend myself before you. God, I appeal to you, please forgive me of my sins. God says, repent, John, and be baptized. And when I'm baptized, I am saying, God, I'm doing what you said. It's my appeal for a good conscience. I want to be right in your sight. I want to be free from my sin. And notice at the end, do not overlook those words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross gives power to baptism. The resurrection is God's power working in our lives. We were raised just like God raised up Jesus to walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus makes that possible. So Noah and his family saved by water, you and me, if we're gonna be saved, baptism now also saves us. Kind of interesting to stop and think about some of those passages and what they had to say about baptism and its place and its role. The Bible's very consistent, brothers and sisters and friends. The Bible is very consistent. Baptism is the point at which someone who is lost becomes saved. But there are prerequisites. One must have faith in Jesus and what he's done for us at the cross. One must confess that Jesus is the Christ. One must repent, turn away from sin. That's how somebody is ready to be baptized. Maybe you're in that condition this evening. If we can help you do that or respond in any other way, why don't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.